Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. Titus, which is right after 2 Timothy, right before Hebrews in the New Testament. Or is Philemon there? Did I miss Philemon? Nobody's going to answer, so I guess I'll check it out later. Okay. This morning I want to talk about, as you see in the bulletin, looking for the blessed hope, which is taken from the text in Titus 2, verse 13. And as I was preparing for today, I wouldn't normally comment on this, but I want you to know that uh, whenever I get up and prepare to preach, I always have a tremendous sense of inadequacy. And I think it's true of all pastors that we have a tremendous sense of inadequacy in, in, in uh, both preparing for and, and actually going about the work of preaching. And uh, I thought about this this morning in this past week, and particularly yesterday when I was struggling with this text and this uh, subject, and I was, I was uh, oppressed by my sense of inadequacy because of my own sin in my own posture and understanding the, uh, the glorious subject of Jesus Christ's return. And I say that not because I would say it every time I speak, but I want you to think about that in terms of yourself because I know I'm not alone in this sin. And I want us to be prepared as we read in the Word that we'll be prepared to hear what God says concerning Christ's return and that we will be challenged and changed by it. I want this for myself and I desire it for you as well. With that said, let's go on and look at Titus. Who was Titus? Titus was a Gentile convert who, like Timothy, was connected to Paul through the presentation of the Gospel and through discipleship. And we first hear of Titus in Galatians 2 when he accompanies Paul to Jerusalem. And as one of the first Gentiles probably introduced to the church in Jerusalem, we're told that he was not compelled to be circumcised. We know that there was a big debate about circumcision at the time. And Titus, as a Gentile, was not compelled to be circumcised. Later on, we find that Titus, like Timothy, acted as Paul's representative to the newly formed and forming churches in the regions where he would go and preach. And on occasion, and on this occasion in the writing of this letter, Titus is on the island of Crete and he's establishing a structure for the church there, the fledgling church that exists there. So Paul had been there and and, uh, uh, there was a church structure in place of sorts, but it was floundering a little bit. They needed some instruction. Titus was sent to give them that instruction. Paul gives him special instructions concerning the establishment of the churches and the order in them. So he's there to set things in order and to appoint elders in every city. And Paul infers in the text that Titus has his work cut out for him. And he does this by quoting Epimenides, uh, who was a poet of the time, who says, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And even today, men with these character flaws are sometimes referred to as Cretans, right? Or Green Bay Packers fans, one or the other. 
Well, there are many similarities between the books of Titus and 1 Timothy, and I want to go through a few of them as we're coming into the text. Both were written, of course, by men who were acting as Paul's representatives to their two respective areas, uh, Ephesus for the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, and of course, Crete for Titus. Both are books full of instruction. Both outline the foundational need for authority as God has ordained it. Both contain direct charges to silence false teachers. To Timothy, Paul writes, I urge you, as I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, etc., In Titus 1.10, it says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Both of these books have instructions for the appointment of officers in the churches. Uh, We use these letters extensively when we are examining someone who has potential of being ordained in our church as an elder or as a deacon. And when we give announcements to the church in advance of that time of people being ordained to those offices, we give announcements to the church asking you to respond and, and to compare the men who are candidates for these offices, compare them against the texts in, in Timothy and Titus to see if they are in fact qualified to the office. Both of these books have specific instructions uh, giving particular instruction to uh, and for and about women. Both have statements about purity, cleanness, and about purity and cleanness being connected to the faith and belief of the individual. Both give a visual picture of how God is represented to the world by his church. And they're beautiful pictures in 1 Timothy We're called the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. A picture of a pillar. A pillar of truth. Holding the truth up by our example and by our lives. And Titus, as he's talking to bond slaves, of which we would would all recognize ourselves to be bond slaves of Christ, he says that bond slaves should be adorned or should adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. They should wear the doctrine of God on them like clothing. should be adorned with it. It's a visual picture of how we represent God to the world. Both have a parenthetical micro-doctrine placed in them. And this is where the focus of my sermon is this morning, this parenthetical micro-doctrine that's placed in them in reference to the incarnation of Christ. In 1 Timothy, it's in chapter 3 and verse 16, where he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, was, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. A classic poetical doctrinal statement talking about the work of Jesus Christ and encompassing his life but initially talking about his revealing in the flesh, that he came in the flesh, that he, was, that he was incarnate, that he appeared on the earth. And Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, the focus of my text this morning, has a similar type of statement, not with the poetry, but, but very similar in that it, 
it comes out of the text and all of the instructions that surround it. And, and Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. It had to be established in the mind, in minds of those first believers that the gospel, the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, was good news that made all other news pale by comparison. It also has to be established in our minds. Christ Jesus came in a body. God becomes man and lives in the flesh. Stop and think about that for a moment. Have you meditated on the fact recently that Jesus Christ was God incarnate? God took on a body. First, God made the universe. He made the world. He made us. And then He clothed Himself with a body in order to bring salvation to all men under His own terms and meeting His own just conditions. Now think about that for a second. I saw some really cool pictures from the Mars rover this week. Marlon Brando died. God took on a body. He made us. He made the world. He made the universe. And then He clothed Himself with a body in order to bring salvation to all men under His own terms, meeting His own just conditions. Think of the words in Titus 2.11, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. This is good news. This is not the Mars rover. This is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Paul loved the appearing of Christ. And I mean His first appearing. And I mean His birth, His ministry, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension. Paul loved this. He says in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Why would Paul love His appearing? Why would anyone love His Those who love the appearing of Christ love it because of what it means to their souls. Paul and anyone else who is a recipient of God's love and His grace loves the appearing of Jesus because in it is the Gospel. The good news. The good news. No other news compares. Even if we get to Pluto and land a rover. It doesn't compare. Not everyone loves the good news. 
Um, if you do not have an interest in Christ, you do not love this good news. Some people, in fact, who have heard the good news have hated the good news. In John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So there are many who hate Christ. And if you do not love Jesus Christ, perhaps it's because you've not heard of what he has done. And I want to briefly tell you that in our, in our condition, in our state, without Jesus Christ, all men are sinners and we're alienated from God. And that our sin justly deserves to be punished. And that God is the judge. And that he justly can place us in hell and must for our sin. I want to tell you this morning also that God, because of His love for men, gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, as a substitute to take that punishment that we deserve upon Himself. And that if we will believe on this substitute who has taken this punishment for us, if we will trust in the work that He has done in His work on the cross that we will not take that punishment, but rather we will have instead the blessing of God that should have gone to Christ. And he takes our punishment in our place. I want to encourage you this morning, if you do not love Jesus Christ, you are alienated from God. And it is true that being alienated from him, that you are headed for eternal wrath in hell, a literal hell, and that's bad news. But I want to appeal to you to cast away your pride and to humble yourself before God and to confess your sin to Him and to place your confidence in Jesus Christ on your behalf. I want to make that appeal. If that's something that's been going on in your mind, I want to encourage you to keep pursuing Jesus Christ and His work for you. And if you have questions, to seek out those in this church and leadership and the pastors and the elders and the deacons who can help you in understanding the work of Jesus Christ for you. But the church, the church does not hate her Redeemer. The church loves her Redeemer. And we love his first appearing. And we also hope for his second appearing, Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." The first appearing here in, in verse 11 refers to the grace of God coming, but the grace of God literally came. And so it, it does refer to the incarnation of Christ. God's grace literally came in body, bodily form. The Word became flesh. And then all through this letter, around this statement, we see Paul instructing Titus 
on how to give practical instruction to the church, practical, practical things of how they should live. We read some this morning in our scriptural passage from 1 Timothy. Practical instructions for the church. Why? Why all those practical instructions? Because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. He has redeemed us from every lawless deed. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. He purified us as a people for His own possession. 1 Corinthians 6.9 and following, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. This purification is manifested through the washing of His church as God cleanses and washes His church and makes us clean. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives. We heard this last week in the sermon that was uh, preceding the wedding. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. That He might present to Himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Think of this in terms of marriage. These instructions, like so many others in the Scriptures, are written for the church, a bride that is being readied for her wedding day. It's all part of the wedding preparation. I was talking to my wife about this, and she said, well, I wonder how do men understand that? How do men understand that? Because they've never been brides. Now men, for us to prepare the church for marriage to Christ, or for us to be prepared as the church for marriage to Christ, is not for us to become women. The church is the bride as a type and not as of her sex. Men are not being married to Christ. The church, which is composed of men, women, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, and free, are being united to Christ as the archetype of what it means to be chosen, purchased, cherished, and gathered to a groom. That is the church. That is a bride. Chosen, purchased, cherished, and gathered to her groom, presented to her groom. And there is a broad list of instructions in and around Titus and around the Titus 2 passage, but right within the passage, he gives it in a very general and broad sense in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. How are we being prepared and how are we preparing ourselves for our coming union with Christ and our being presented to Him? Well, we, we must deny ungodliness in ourselves. Deny ungodliness. This is impiety. It's lack of reverence towards God. We see it all around us. We witness it. Sometimes we participate in it. And we should not. It's being casual about God, about His name, 
about who He is. It's all of our jokes about heaven and the pearly gates and the judgment. It's not a sign of weakness to blush when people use God's name in vain. It's not a sign of weakness to walk away when they start telling a joke that's going to be impious or irreverent to God. It's a sign of strength and it's a sign of preparation for being presented to Christ. He says we must deny worldly desires and these are simply the lusts that are forbidden in our lives. People, the people of God should not find themselves satiated with power and pleasure and wealth. We shouldn't find our satisfaction there. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. I knew a a man who used to talk about this and he said it was girls' gold and glory. And that's how he would explain it. But this isn't how the church, the members of the body of Christ, should find themselves satiated and satisfied with these lusts. Because we're not of this world and those lusts are evil. And they've been rejected by God. And we're not to participate in them. We must live sensibly. And the essence of sensibility is basically just to keep control. God's people must be in control of themselves. Sober, temperate, and sound in mind. Have their senses about them. You know, in having your senses about you, you don't fall prey to deception nearly so easily. If you keep your senses about you, you will be ready in preparation to be presented to Christ. We must live righteously, proper and upright, following that scripturally informed sense of ought. Matthew 7:12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. We must live godly. And of course, this is the opposite of living ungodly. We must live with the proper reverence toward God. We must not do some things, ungodliness and worldly lust. We must do other things, live sensibly, righteously, and godly. These actions place us in the correct frame of mind for the waiting which allows us to be finally looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They prepare us for this. Now, I bring these two things together, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the, great, of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, some, most Greek scholars, argue that these two are the one and the same. And if you listen to them, if you consider them, you'll see that they are inseparable. In Romans 8, we have the hope for final adoption and redemption through the glorification of our bodies. And it says, verse 23, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of our spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And so there you have the final adoption, the redemption of the body. But then in 1 Thessalonians, we're comforted with the hope that we will meet the Lord in the air and always be with Him. Starting in chapter 4, verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve and as do the rest who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive will remain until the coming of the Lord. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Regardless of whether you're talking about our final redemption, the redemption of our bodies and our final adoption by the Lord, or whether you're talking about being present with the Lord, you're talking about the Lord's return when both will be realized. And this is the hope that we have in the future. Now, all of those things that we read from Titus 2, verse 12, all of those things are for direct application now. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, living sensibly, righteously, and godly in this world, in this present age. They're all preparatory for us, preparing us, setting us in the right frame of mind for hope. But I want to take just a minute and talk about a few points for consideration and further application. And there are a few points about weddings and brides. Because I don't think we can examine this without thinking about in terms of a marriage and a wedding. We've been to several weddings this summer, the Carell family. If you were here last Sunday, you would have rejoiced with God as our worship included a wedding ceremony that typified for us the relationship between Christ and the church. And over the years, I've seen a lot of weddings and I've seen a lot of brides as they've gotten ready to be married. And there's some things I've noticed about brides. Brides live in hope. Brides live in and with hope. They even have boxes that they store things in that they will use to set up in their home when they're married to their groom. And those boxes are called hope chests. They live in hope. Now, the church has been redeemed and is being purified in anticipation of some great event. And this event, we are to live in a blessed or happy hope for its coming. We are to have an uh, investment in the hope of the coming of Christ. How would you measure your hope in Christ or the extent of it? Do you often think about the coming of Christ? You know a bride thinks about her wedding day. Do you open up your Bible as a sort of hope chest looking for passages that will tell you about the day that's coming, the glorious day? Brides live with a sense of hope and the church is to live with a sense of hope for the coming of Christ. Brides also live with a sense of anticipation. They anticipate being presented to their groom 
and having consummate unification with him. They live with a sense of anticipation. My wife, on the morning of our wedding, she had the morning of our wedding all planned out. I wasn't going to be there. She was going to take a long, long bath and she was going to do her nails and she was going to do her hair. And she was, she was preparing in anticipation. She had a huge anticipation. Now, I must tell you that someone lost our marriage license and, and rather than taking the long bath, she uh, dug around in the garbage with me outside of her mother's home uh, for, for quite a long time. But brides live with a sense of anticipation of, of being joined with their husbands. And there will be no missteps or lost licenses in the unification of Christ and His church, His bride. This event is the presentation and final unification with Jesus the groom. We will be presented to Christ. Ephesians 5 again. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We're going to be presented to Christ, by Christ, by God, presented to Him. We should live in anticipation. How do you measure your anticipation? How do you measure your preparation? Obedience is the, is the preparation of the church. Simple obedience to God. It's the preparation of our church. Are you denying ungodliness and earthly lusts? Are you living sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age? This is the measure of the church. This is a measure of our anticipation. Brides live with a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. Now I'm going to say this, and if it gets me in trouble... I don't recommend lengthy engagements. I don't recommend lengthy engagements. My wife and I were engaged in November and we were married the next May. And I remember when we were having our discussions at the beginning of, of about when we were going to get married, as soon as I had uh, proposed and asked for her hand from her father and I had proposed to her and we started talking about when we would get married, it started off that we would get married in May of 1984. And when it ended up, we got married in May of 1983. Because there was urgency. Urgency to come to marriage and to be together. My advice is have a nice, slow, get-to-know-you, decision-making courtship. And then when you have decided to marry, get it done. Get married. After the engagement, we have an urgency. Or at least we should have. Where is the urgency seen in the Christian? Where is our urgency seen as Christians? I would argue that our urgency is measured in our heartfelt prayer. Revelation 22.20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Our urgent prayer in anticipation of His coming. Second Peter 
chapter 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth, <clears throat> excuse me, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now you may say, well, this is just an endless cycle because people keep being born. And God is what? Keeping waiting, waiting for all these others? Now you have to think about terms, not only time in terms of, of the way God sees it, but redemption in terms of the way God sees it. Because the Bible says that those who are predestined are called and finally glorified to Him. And so we can't think and try to examine these things in terms of our understanding. We must think of them in terms of God's understanding. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conducts and godliness? I'm going to read that again. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Looking for and what? Hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, I remember in the time of the... Uh, uh, the uh, reconstruction of Israel in Jerusalem and in Palestine. And I remember that preceding that, there was a, a group of people who wanted to hasten the coming of God by doing what they believed to be uh, working toward a scriptural end, and that is as soon as Israel gets back in Palestine, then the hastening of the coming of God will happen. I'm not going to go into that. But I will say this. The Bible says that when we live in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and somehow hastening the coming of the day of God. I don't know if it's hastening because time is moving faster for us because we're having fun, or if it's hastening because that's the preparation that God will have, a godly, more godly, more glorious, more wondrous church being more purified until the point when he will come, that it will escalate. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed, back in First Peter, by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, 
as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now to the day of eternity. Amen. We as a church should live in anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ. And we should be marked by lives that show that anticipation. And this morning we're going to do something that we regularly do that once again is connected to our anticipation to Christ. Because what did Jesus say? He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until He comes. And so this is a preparation. This is part of our remembrance. This is part of our preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so if the elders will come forward, please, we'll prepare.